Robert Love is the director of the City of Parramatta's Riverside Theatres, a role he relishes, overseeing one of the most highly attended venues in the country. In addition to his role in administration, he can often be found up a ladder changing a light bulb and pitching in with any task essential in the efficient running of an arts venue. The theatres host a variety of entertainments, drama, art house cinema, multicultural storytelling, dance, stand-up comedy, cultural celebrations and a resident company, the National Theatre of Parramatta. It is a venue that embraces the diversity of the community it services. Love founded his own theatre company, Tow Truck Theatre, in 1976, providing a valuable social and educational role to students in regional and urban schools. Subsequent roles travelled management positions with organisations such as the University of Sydney's Seymour Centre, the State Theatre Company of South Australia, the Sydney Theatre Company, Fox Studios and News Limited, eventually taking up the baton at Riverside Theatres in 2000. He's been made a member in the General Division of the Order of Australia for significant service to the performing arts, particularly in Western Sydney, as an administrator and as a supporter of independent artists. He joined Stages for a riveting conversation, pondering the place of the arts in nourishing a population, the dilemma of arts funding, the future of theatre as an art form, and his own stellar career as a leader at various arts organisations. Probably come back to his own. Some will discover his scripts and probably do them in 25 years when he's long gone. Well, we need to celebrate our artists that have gone we before, do. don't we? We do, yeah. No, Whether really. they're performers or writers or... Australia doesn't do it very well. We do it... Um, um, the, the English do it better. The Europeans probably do it pretty well too. We tend to... We tend to just... Um, and probably even in Asia, you know... Um, we just tend to sort of we're very we're a very now society. You know, we like things that are on the moment. You know, they're 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 hot. You know, they're you know you, you have rich and fame and it lasts for a very short period of time and then you're dispensed to the to to the to the old age home or to the um, or to the bin or to a coffin or to a celestial paradise or to somewhere. And, 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 and we have done that consistently and then people are rediscovered, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years later and we go, oh, wow. Is that big, often because a new guard comes in and they're well, it's, it's a giving work to their thing. own generation? You have, yeah. Of course they do. People like to work with people you know and people tend to work with... Um, people like, you know, people work with people. I mean, I've known Tony. I knew Tony when he was at NIDA and I was at uni in my first year at uni and I used to go it's to... It's Tony Llewellyn-Jones. Yeah. yeah, and I used to go to... Um, the Ast- I, don't know, I don't know why we're talking about this because you want to do this probably formally, so... No, no, not at all. I thought that's the beauty of podcast. I think it's authentic. Oh, OK. You're doing it now. We've started. Oh, yeah. OK. I didn't even know. Well, I mean, I, I first met Tony <laughs> when he was at NIDA and, um, and I was in first year uni and I went to Australian Theatre for Young People when it was run, run by a woman called Diana Sharp and Alistair Duncan. No one can even... Alistair was a sort of a, a, one of those voice radio actors with the ABC and did a bit of television as well um, and Diana Sharp um, ran the Australian Theatre for Young People and ran it out in um, out at uh, the old parade not the new parade the old parade theatre as part and she was sort of also there I think looking after casting for Robin Lovejoy in the Alto Theatre Company and Tony was a student at NIDA Richard Werrett had just come back from overseas and was an associate director of the Old Toad. And he brought, brought people like Chris Hayward, 
Larry Eastwood. Oh, back to Australia with him. Yeah, they, yeah. They, yeah well, well, Chris had, was English. Larry might have been English too. Right. Um, I think he was. Tony wasn't, of course, because his um, father was the famous gynaecologist obstetrician. And his mother, Liz Kirby, was the famous politician, upper house member of the Legislative Council. And he had a wonderful sister, Deborah, who married Larry Eastwood, who may still be around. I think Deborah's still around. And I always remember having the best pillow fight of my life with her and Maggie, who was in Juanita Nielsen. Ma- Maggie Blinko. Maggie Blinko. Mm. I remember having an amazing pillow fight in Deborah's house, I think, with Maggie Blinko and Deborah Llewellyn Jones at the time in 1970, I don't know, something or other. So there you go. And, and Tony had Tony was at NIDA and, and Richard started up, ran these Saturday morning workshops, you know, which used to be on the parade. In those days, occupational health and safety, no, no, no. We just used the set that the old tote were using at night. So we had, we were there in the parade theatre and we ran, he ran these Saturday morning workshops. One of the people who came along was Michael Gow. Michael was still at secondary school and Michael used to turn up in a caftan. <laughs> and he had a head of hair in those days and he had a white, what he said was a birthmark in his hair. I think it was peroxide. Mm. Um, and Michael was there. And there were other, Vanessa Downing was at the AT with those workshops and a whole lot of people. And Tony used to come down and would, uh, because he was a student, they sort of, he would run some of the workshops. So, because they would, so Tony used to come Saturday, they used to give up their Saturday mornings or Saturday. We used to, I think we went from about nine o'clock to one or something like that. It was about four was that your first taste of a, a theatre experience? No, no, no. no? You, w- where did you start? School production? You, well, you want to know my very first taste of theatre? Absolutely. My very first taste of theatre was as a, as a, um, a preschooler in Perth. And it was a preschool concert, and I can remember we were all taught to recite the Grand Old Duke of York. He had three thousand men. He marched them up to the top of the head, uh, top of the hill. hill, and he marched them down again. When they were up, they were up. When they were down, blah 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 blah. And I remember, I can remember that not ever doing it. All I can remember is being under the stage, and we had to go to sleep down there, either before or after. I can't remember. I remember the sleeping and going to sleep under the stage, but don't actually remember the performance at all, except I do know what I performed. I think my mother might have told me that at some point. So there you go, (laughs) my first experience. And then I did a lot of stuff at, not not really much at primary school, not really, but I was interested in things then. And then really was in secondary school where I got involved in you know drama societies and spent. So you were, and that was in Brisbane. I moved. My parents had moved to Brisbane. Then I went to a, a boys' school in Brisbane, and um, we um, we did a lot of plays there. And we had a little association with La Boite because one of our teachers was mixed up with the early La Boite thing with a woman called Babette Stevens. Oh yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Who used to run La Boite and was sort of like the. And I remember going to her house. And she used to play, she used to have records, um, you know. Um, cast recordings? or Cast recordings. Yeah, yeah. And I can remember she played Richard Burton doing Hamlet in that famous John Gielgud production, yeah. which I know, which I've got a, a DVD, because you get a DVD, shocking visually, but you could actually hear it all. So it was Richard Burton doing his full vocal, vocal pyrotechnics in it. 
and it was filmed. And, and, and there's a wonderful thing at the end of that DVD. This, I'm going totally all over the place here. I love it. He, 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 at one point, this is quite funny because now you know how we have National Theatre Live? Yeah, yeah. There's a whole story to that, that how all this film star. Because that, that was filmed in New York. And right at the end of that DVD, if you ever get it and have a look at it, Richard Burton does what is a sort of like a K-Tel ad for um, how you can see this in 35 cinemas around the United States of America. So they actually re-screened it in cinemas. And of course in Australia we had a very famous um, Boyer Industrial. We had a Boyer, um, uh, what was it called? The Industry Assistance Commission, I think it was called, run by the, the, one of the Boyers. There's the Boyer Lectures, the ABC. I don't know which Boyer this was, whether it was a son of the fame of that one or whatever, but, but he was head of that. And they ran an inquiry into whether they could actually film performances of the Sydney Symphony and, um, and live performance, yeah. and they could show them in regional Australia on 16mm film. This is about 1976, 77, and I remember the two people who opposed it, which were unlikely bedfellows, was Jack Mundy and Lady, Lady Fairfax, who both said that that would be, in a, it was the wrong way to take performance to the country probably was on a 16mm film film thing. And of course later on, the guy the guy in Australia who ran Mastermind, Hugh Evans, mm -hmm. yes. he had a whole concept called narrow casting, not broadcasting. And I remember going to a talk, this would be in maybe the 1980s, late 80s, 80s, maybe early 90s, I can't remember. And this was just when CDs were coming and CD-ROMs and so on. And he had this whole thing which he was trying to get up. And he talked about how you could get a high-definition picture on a screen the side of the proscenium in orange and you could actually see the Sydney Symphony doing a concert on the basis that if you did one or two like that, relatively cheaply, when the orchestra actually travelled there, they, people might then come and see the live performance. So, so, that, so that was the next stage. And then, of course... Then we've gone, we've gone into these other, you know, as digital came in and much more, well, you know, and, and got cheaper because in those days it would have been quite expensive to do. In fact, it was very expensive, hugely expensive. And of course it got cheaper and cheaper. And now, of course, we have, you know, we have the English National Theatre Live and then, of course, Grant Dobble and Peter, his partner, doing Australian Australia. National Theatre Live, which I think they found a bit harder to get going because the marketplace here was quite small and of course, and of course uh, um, the STC dabbled into that briefly when Kate Blanchard was there the white guard the I think white guard yeah. and and they never really took it on they should have taken it on had her in a couple because they could have established an international market distribution while there was an international movie star running a theatre company and there were some long just protracted discussions, I think, with equity and MEAA about it. But eventually that was all sorted out. It, yes, does it become very expensive when you've got to pay all of the creatives involved? I think there is some payment, but it's relatively small. small. Because it's a limited uh, And then screening. I think there is something that says they can get something if something happens later on down the track. Mm. But it's relatively small. Hence, I guess, those National Theatre Lives are on for three performances and that's it. Well, they are. They have a they have a window, but a lot of them now don't. They have an open window. Like we run a thing here called um, Cinema on Demand, which is basically those national theatre performances of two, three, four years ago, where the license actually allows has a has a two or three year life, 
and we go out to schools and if schools want to see that we will screen it at their request on demand basically and some of them do we don't we get we we, we do get a bit we you know there's got to be something like king lear or with some nice stream or one of the some of them come back. I mean, things like... Um, I think One Man, Two Governors being promoted again. At the that's, yeah, that's come yeah. back. But things like we've screened um, the Helen Mirren thing around Queen Elizabeth. It's not called... The, the audience? Queen, the audience. Mm. We've screened... We've had that back. We would have screened that probably 12 to 15 times here over a series of, you know, little, you know, reprise seasons. And also um, we've... Um, screened um, uh, Cumberbatches and Johnny Lee. The Frankenstein. Frankenstein many times as well. And a couple of others have come back too. They've actually come back and we re- redo them. Um, but usually the big ones. Uh, and his Hamlet, Cumberbatch's Hamlet, we did a couple of times too. Yeah, so yeah. So, you know, so that, uh, we only started that program about seven years ago. And and there was always that debate. I always remember the very first one, which was Phaedra with Helen Mirren in it, you know, where where Heitner sat with Jeremy Irons doing the introduction set at the front of the... Ca- I saw it over the Cremorne because I don't think we showed the very first couple and then we jumped onto it and we did. And I always remember them saying they didn't know whether anyone was whether it was going to be any good or whether it would look... And, in fact, the early things of those were a bit... The sound would drop out and there'd be a Zoom that didn't work because it was all being done live. They've got that down so pat now that it's all incredibly good. Um, so, yeah, so that's grown. So that little audience has grown. But we find that a lot of people go to it, but, but they do go... They, they're often the same audience that go to the live stuff as well. But it picks up a few more that probably think, I can go to that because it's a little bit cheaper. There's no doubt about that. But our live performance still grows as well. Anyway, I've gone for all over the place. No, there. I love it, I love it, I love I, it. I went... I started with Tony Wellen Jones at NIDA in 1970-something or other. And finished with National Well, we actually Life. started with Barry Dickens, so we've actually gone through it. And because we do show the stuff that Grant does too, so we've, we've shown all of his, I think. We've had them all here one way or the other, which is good. But I think that's a small... I think, that, I think they do quite well out in some of the regional areas where it is hard to get, which goes back to that, you know, that Boyer Commission... You know, and the cost of getting live performance into the country has always been... Of course, it's been assisted since 93 with the Playing Australia Fund, which I remember when I was at the Sydney Theatre Company, we took um, Death and the Maiden, Neil Armfield's production, on one of the very first tours supported by the Playing Australia Fund. We took it to Perth at the old playhouse there and we put it on in, in there. We did many others we took there as well in the next couple of years. So the Playing Australia Fund has allowed for live performance to get out into the country at a cost that's, you know, sort of like workable because all those touring costs uh, are the things that really make it impossible. Even we struggle, if interstate thing coming here, to actually have to pick up all those costs. It almost puts it outside of our budget range. We just can't do it. But with that, that we can afford to pay the fee to the company. Of course, that's changed too. Once upon a time, touring in Australia was about the producers taking the risk or sharing the risk with the venue or the producer, in the case of JC Williamson's, owning the venues, which meant a tour was really easy because you owned all the venues. Of course, now getting sequencing tours and we have a lot of inefficiencies now way tours go all over the country costing. The freight providers, the hotel people, they do well out of it. I'm not so sure that the theatre companies and the producers do that well out of it. But it does get live performance out into the regions, which, it, which, which obviously until about 1993, that didn't happen at all. So that's nearly 20, that's over 20, nearly 30 years ago, really. So, you know, a lot's happened in that period of time. And, and we, uh, we wonder about the future, don't we, now, with a, 
the, the axing of a Department of the Arts. I still can't work out what's going on in there. I can't work out whether... Is it the axing of the department or is it simply... The merging the, with six others? Yes. I mean, there's got... One has a sense of them, you know, them being in a very big Canberra office and over in the corner there's four desks and that's the arts people over there doing their thing as opposed to maybe being on a floor that has a sign in the front of reception who says arts... You know, so, and in theory, there's still a minister for communication and the arts, but I'm not so sure whether it's now just the minister for communication and the arts has been dropped off that and it's now just conflated into Fletcher's portfolio as part of what communications do. I don't know. So it's a bit hard to tell. It doesn't matter. The, the symbolism of it is it's not very, is not satisfactory. The no. symbolism is very counterproductive. And I think, you know, but on the other hand, is the government going to worry? You know, the arts industry will jump up and down like we do. But will they do anything? No, 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 no. Because I think they they keep thinking we're not a significant vote puller. I think they, both parties still think that. And it gets down to votes, doesn't it? Ultimately, it gets down to votes. And I and you know and although we make a big play about you know, can, you know we're a significant contributor to the national economy and you know we do all sorts of other wonderful things as well. I'm not so sure that the politicians. I think you're more likely to see small business reinstated before you'll see arts reinstated, I suspect. Because small business, they understand that. They vote. Artists are too busy being artists and don't vote. But we do vote. We, we, are, we do vote, and our audiences vote too. So you'd think they'd understand that. But we've got... We're, we're less... Um, you know, we're, we're less... Um, you know, back 20, 30 years ago, you know, you'd get marches in the street. You know, I remember going to rallies in... Um, in that little bit between the town hall and um, and the cathedral. Oh, you said that's there'd be people up there giving speeches and there'd be arts, you know, there was a, a lot going on back in the 80s. And that's all dropped away. And, of course, we still tend to be a little bit... I think we've got better at being um, more cohesive as one arts industry as opposed to being a series of different sections of it, all sort of like fighting for the small pie I think there's a, a little bit I think there is a greater sense of we're all got to expand the pie and not just try and get more of the little pie that exists we're out of pilots we're into pies now those pilots we've got to stop stop worrying about them so I think that's a that that's a positive thing and I think we've probably become more sophisticated in our lobbying I mean the regional thing I think is extreme is has been extremely adept you know, through Regional Arts Australia, they—they, they, I always said thirty years ago, they have a—they have a constituency, and a, and a voter thing that somehow the politicians understand. Once you get into the urban areas, they the arts doesn't. But I think so. Arts, you know, I used to find that you know Regional Arts Australia could get meetings with ministers really quickly and easily because they represented that constituency nationally, and it was hard to find people that represented some sort of grouping that could actually get access to that degree and and they weren't and Regional Arts Australia never looked particularly partisan politically and we still tend to the arts we tend to look as though you know we, we would favour the Labor government and sometimes with good reason why so so I think the Liberals are always a little suspicious 
you know, of that and, and, and also have a different approach to it as well. Although if you go back in history, you can sort of see some of the big innovations and changes were all instituted by the by Liberal governments, by coalition governments, not by Labor governments necessarily. Labor governments do a lot of trying and, and, and they do have a different approach to how how the money is dispensed and, and, and all of that. But but sometimes the big initiatives have come from the from the coalition. Not that I'm a coalition supporter, because I mean I think you know, I think they Currently, you know, there's been a slow attrition, and you know, of the, of the level of support that actually does come from, um, you know, fr- from from government at a federal level, but also at a state level as well. Anyway, that's another story. I'll, I'll stop now. You can ask a question. I can, I'm <laughs> chatting away like a like a voice machine. Uh, doing a Barry Dickens monologue. I'm doing a Barry Dickens monologue. I don't want to do that. Barry, come back, Barry. <laughs> so, was a career in the arts always on the cards for you, or did you consider other things? Uh, well, I, I definitely came from Brisbane to do an undergraduate degree at um, University of New South Wales, which I did do. Um, and uh, around that stage, got involved obviously with the Australian Theatre of the YMP, and very quickly was still doing that degree and working for the ATYP. So I used to, um, I had many titles in those days. I was called uh, Training Director, so with the old toad, I was um, uh, Education Coordinator, um, I was Workshop um, Manager. And we had a young tote, a guy called Ray Omaday was very involved in that. Um, uh, in, the, in the early days, Richard, we used to do big summer workshops up at, at the old Nida Tin Sheds, and we'd put together over a two-week period. where I first met Heather Mitchell, I think, who was involved in one of those. Again, she was at school, I think, at the time. I mean, I wasn't long out of school, I was in, yeah. but I was sort of, they, somehow I ended up working. That's where I first met Kim Carpenter. I often tell the story of um, I was running one of those summer workshops or involved in one of those summer workshops, and so was Kim. And Kim used to do um, used to do these huge collages on tar paper as part of the project. And I always remember this this brilliant one was done, and we had, we took it down to the old Parade Theatre, and we wanted to pin it all around the upper foyer and around. And a guy called Ken Southgate, who was the general manager of the Alto Theatre Company got very wouldn't let it go up or something there was a bit of grumpiness about it at the time I remember but but Kim Carpenter was there he was he was pretty young but he already was professional designer doing professional designs for the Alto Theatre Company in those days um, and I always remember Richard Werrett driving I always remember Jackie Weaver arriving at one of those workshops too arriving in a car the two of them because Jackie and Richard at one stage were very close um, back in history um, so it was there was a very formative period, you know, all those um, all those sort of workshops. So 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 going to university, getting involved with the ATYP, then getting some work with the ATYP, and then by 1976, I found, founded um, Tow Truck Theatre, which we toured schools, and then I did that until um, about 1980, and then I. I literally exhausted myself. I was sick of, um, I think I had a couple of hernias. I used, we used to start at 5 a.m. We'd often shift schools twice a day. We'd be going upstairs, doing performances in Western... This is where my first involvement, engagement with Western Sydney happened because we used to travel out Parramatta Road before M4s, before air conditioning in cars, and you'd drive out very early. You'd meet the cleaners early in the morning. You'd set up. You'd do performances. Often move to another school, possibly even a third school, what had been done. And then we'd be the last people at the school to meet the cleaners again at the end of the day. We'd finish about four or five, get back in the car, 
often very hot I can remember and you drive most of the company with the four or five other people who are touring would go to sleep in the car and one person was a designated driver and we'd get back to the Seymour Centre and then we'd um, either go and build the little next set we used to build everything out of aluminium and we used to pot rivet everything and it was all modular and lightweight so we could stack it brilliantly in the back of things so we did a lot of so, so I very quickly went from university, ATYP, tow truck theatre, so quickly got involved in that, at a professional level then. But even then, not I ran that company, but I actually supported myself by teaching at Newcastle University 16 hours a week. I used to drive up there on a Honda Zod before freeways. And a Honda Zod is basically a lawnmower with a little chassis around it. That's basically what it is. Right. And I used to get, I used to leave at 5 a.m. I'd get up there just before nine and I'd start 16 hours of tutorials and workshops. And I finished the last one around about nine o'clock, I think, on the, I think I used to do Monday and Tuesdays, and the Tuesdays I'd finish, then I'd either stay, I did sometimes stay overnight, but often I got back in the car and got back into Sydney about one o'clock. It was about a four hour drive in those days, quite long. Just watch your, your tapping. All right, I'm sorry. It'll, it'll pick up on the... We don't want tapping. Tapping. Well, I could do Unless some tap Unless you've got dancing. tap shoes. I could do tap shoes. <laughs> I went and saw Wayne Kerman the other night out at um, Glen Street. Street. was it? Yeah. He is a phenomenon, that man. Extraordinary, yeah. I mean, I don't know But belonging I, to a generation, you know, he's coming from, uh, from, oh, yes. from his father and yeah, grandfather. And the, you know, the son, so he's whatever. inheriting all of those. Like, uh, those it's great like, how skills. does he... Like, he's got more energy on stage. So he must be 50 plus, 55 plus or something. He's unbelievable. He's just like, like, unbelievable. It's a good little show too. It's they really, you know, developed that into something that it's sort of like it's it, it's of its time, of course, and it's got a certain style. But yeah, sorry. he was in no, he was in that very first production I ever saw, uh, Barnum with Reg Livermore. Yes, right. Yes, and Wayne yes. played Tom Thumb. I know he is amazing. He did uh, his candy show here. We've been talking about trying to get his little Spiegelist, you know, cabaret show for a while, but we've never been able to quite. He's always wanted to bring a Spiegel tent. We've never been able to find the place to put it or get it to happen. But now he's taken it to a theatre. We might eventually get it here in the next year or so, hopefully. We'll see. So I went off the track there. Was it you were getting into how I got into the theatre? No, good. I want to go back to uni. Yep. At UNSW, you were yep. a student of Dr Oliver Fiala. I was. Yeah. I was. Who contributed significantly to education in school. He did. I, he did. In fact, he, he was definitely a major mentor in terms of that whole educational theatre movement and theatre and education. I was going to say, is that what led you to developing something like Tow Trunk? Well, there were other influences too, because I was, you know, like, um, I don't know whether Roger Chapman, Roger Chapman came to Australia. He, he eventually was the international touring manager for Richard Eyre at the National Theatre when he went back to England but he ran Car Clue which was the early days of and he ran the theatre education company with the State Theatre Company of South Australia so that was probably concurrent around that period too. Um, was there so, much theatre in education at that time 76? I mean oh, well, there were, well, there were a lot of touring there were a lot of touring snake shows and animal shows because my wife used to work as a um, work for performances for schools which was a group she got, somehow got herself into that she, she was a teacher and, and, a, and came from a drama background I first met her when I was teaching um, theatre education at NIDA um, and she was a student and, that, and she was coming along to observe that that's when I first met her um, and um, I don't know where that was going. Where were we going? Um, Theatre and Education Company. Uh, oh yeah. So 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 there were. So she 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 used to have to authorise. Used to have to get a special 
stamp from the department before you could go into schools. And I can tell you there are a lot more crazy touring things, not really theatre. There were some theatre companies doing stuff. Pippi Storm used to tour schools a lot, which had people like Russell Cheek and... Um, Victoria had uh, companies like Woolly Jumpers, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there were a Windmill. Lot. Yeah, we, I mean, we, we, so 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 there were there were a few, but there weren't a lot. There weren't a lot, um, and we definitely did tour to school. We were not a company that did in school. There was always a tension between some people who felt that you could only um, give young people a real theatre experience by bringing them into a theatre. And I used to say you could give anyone a theatre experience anywhere. And I used to love the challenges of going into a school hall with a whole lot of irascible young people who the last thing they wanted to do was go and watch this. So you had to perform at a level that somehow wrangled attention from students that they, that they, they had to watch because whatever you were doing, they could not watch. So you had to go in with that headspace. Yet we, I remember employing some actors who just found it incredibly difficult. They, they love the idea of going to a dressing room and getting into the mood and ready to go on stage. And there were people out there somewhere in the darkness, but we performed. Whereas when you're in school, you know who you're performing to. And you're on at 10 o'clock in the morning? or Very early, yeah. You'd be 9 o'clock. Yeah. And it'd be the first, the first thing up, you know. And it's hot. It's often the, there's no air conditioning. None of that. You're in pretty... You know, hot continue. Your dressing room was the toilet block, if you had a dressing room. Unlikely, you probably did it behind a screen somewhere. You know, you could, if you had a costume, you had to get into. You were setting up and striking the set. And we did all that yourself. I mean, I remember the opera company and a couple of the bigger companies still toured, and they used to tour with. They toured like. With a crew. Yeah, they mm-hmm. toured with a stage manager and possibly a, a technical person working, and the and the singers and the performers sat in the bus waiting until they were asked to leave the bus because the thing was set up for them to perform. Our company, we did everything. We drove, we set it up, we set up the sound system. If there was any lighting, and sometimes we did do a little just to brighten things up, we did all that ourselves, then we performed. And then we pulled it all down and went to the next school, put it all up and did it again. So, yeah, so it was a much more... And, of course, there were people like Albert Hunt. Albert Hunt was an English guy who... Um, did a lot of political theatre and a lot of workers' theatre came to Australia and, I, and he was influential. I, he, he was another... But, but Oliver was very influential around D- Dorothy Hethcote mm. and that whole Dorothy Hethcote movement. And another woman in South Australia called Mary Fairbrother who ran a company called Troika, which was sort of very much the Hethcote technique, you know, where actors took on the mantle, we used to call it the mantle of the expert, and then there would be a... Um, the kids would come in and you'd take them through these dramatic things but sometimes you could step outside of it and stop the action but there was a sort of a process by which the the kids became involved in that role play and actually explored difficult life decision making at at whatever level and she had a great belief that metaphor was the best way for people to deal of course sort of that's what theatre is in a way sort of isn't it it's about um, it's sort of like giving you the distance to not feel so it's quite interesting now that you you, we're in a very interesting era in the theatre where the concept of actors transforming into another physical set is almost seen to be dissembling and dishonest once upon a time we used to think of screen actors being slightly 
um, cheap and nasty because their acting was based on who they were. Now we actually look at most acting being based on who a person is. And of course, there was always a theory that you do use yourself, you know, Stanislavski and you use that. Extension of yourself, yeah. those repertory companies were all about going and seeing a show and the actor on stage was someone you didn't recognise. I mean, I remember going, I mean, in terms of capacity transform, I remember seeing um, Judy Davis do that double of The Fool and Cordelia and she could totally, she has a capacity to totally transform, which is interesting because she has a big career in movies where she's been sort of like focused around who she is you know really you're really watching Judy Davis on screen playing a role not watching the role mm. and totally transforming you can't even guess I always get ex- I always get excited when I go and see something and I see the whole show and then I look at the program and realize the person on stage I have not recognized at all I know them but I just they've totally transformed so that whole thing's changed and then of course now we put up notices where we actually say this play contains triggering moments you know, if you need to, um, and of course, one, at one point there was the whole theory that the theatre was a safe place where you could go and explore those things. Now it's sort of like a dangerous place. It's interesting how our, our society has changed and how it sees the theatre. So the theatre has, has a different sort of, um, and of course my generation came through one thing and a new generation is coming through an, another thing. I mean, I, th- I think they are still... They do overlap and there is sort of like a fusion of all of that. But it's more complex now than it probably was before. We're in a state of transformation, aren't we? And oh, yeah, there's you, a lot of... You wonder what the future for the theatre is. Oh, I think there is a future. I mean, I'm, I'm, quite, I'm still quite convinced that it is... You don't a, see a demise? No, no, I don't. Although I do think it's going to change. I mean, I always think there's something slightly... You could almost say slightly creepy... <laughs> <laughs> that an audience who don't know each other at all all come in are prepared to sit next to each other in rows in a darkened space. Yeah. And you go, and of course, when, when, that, when that fourth wall's broken, and sometimes that can be broken even with those, if you like, um, constraints or impediments of the physicality of the space, I think spaces are going to change. And we're seeing theatre taking that on too, where where, where this. And, and, and a lot of people are worried. I mean, all that Kotowski work and whatever was all... I remember seeing a Kotowski performance in the crypt at St Mary's here. You know, on the ground. We sat on the ground and there were candles around. And I can remember... It was the interrelationship and even the angles of watching an actor through a candle from a lower position looking up at an actor that changes the whole relationship with that actor, particularly if they're almost next to you. And So that changes that whole relationship. So I think there's going to be a lot more... You know, and you know, we've been trying to get a redevelopment up here. You know, the tendency is to say, well, let's just build a building like every other theatre. I, I think adaptable spaces and spaces that can really allow that that change in actor audience relationship and what that means. I think there's going to be more of that. I mean, carriage works in places like that mm. do that. Although sometimes I think um, we, we can still play with um, narrative form theatre as opposed to, if you like, um, impressionistic, um, almost. Uh, driven by, uh, I always say, a visual arts aesthetic. You know, we're basically, it's, an, it's a performance installation. It's not actually a play. And, and sometimes I, I think, although I can see the creative and the imaginative work that goes on there, it doesn't, have a, it doesn't often have a, an authorial comment 
which an audience member has to respond to and, and interpret and then have an opinion about on their own, you're given just a whole series of images and you've got to make sense of them and actually try and come out with something yourself. And I, Sometimes that can work for me and sometimes it doesn't, it just depends. But I think we're going to get, look, theatre's always been a range of all sorts of things, you know, and, and in, a, in a strange sort of way, what we do today, you know, they were still, they would do it 100 years ago, they were doing, you know, you know, two, you know, 2,000 years ago, you know, like Greek theatre, outdoors, big, you know, I mean, really, if you look at it, I mean, we're not really doing anything different. We just keep reinventing it and changing it and fiddling with it. So, so how I, do we ensure that that audience is still there? How do we cultivate a new audience? We've got to make, we've got to make it meaningful. They've got to, um, they've got to feel as though it's part of them. You know, I... I, I we run a big education program here and that's you that provides those initial and you'll often find that people who continue with to want to experience that start fire schools performances a lot don't a lot of people come and never go back again i come across people who who go oh i, I, came, I came to riverside with my school you know 20 years ago but i have never been back since you know and there are a lot of those um, I don't think we give enough experiences for young people. I, I think, I think we should be giving young people probably between eight and twelve experiences a year, where they can see what's good and what's bad, what's different, what what how they're the like and all similar or different. And I think that's really important to um, to, uh, to 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 at least give a, a, gra- a grounding in something that can actually then be further nurtured and, you know, and cultivated over time. But you've got to be relevant. I mean, you, you, and, and it's got to be dangerous. I mean, you know, we talk about dangerous theatre, you know, and, and because, you know, books think, you know, like, you know, what is it, um, not dead, dead theatre? What's it really called it? Dead theatre. Dead theatre. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's got to be. And the best theatre is when there is a moment when you go, is that someone acting or is that real? I mean, going back to Judy Davis, I remember seeing her doing a head of Garber, I think, down at the Sydney Theatre Company. I remember two things happened. One, I can remember a book she was holding came out of her hands and fell into the audience. But there was no recognition almost of the audience. Which again, that's a fourth wall not there. It's just that the book was the book. She had to get the book because the book had to do with what she was doing as a person in the play. And then I remember getting her dress got caught in a door and she could have neatly opened the door and let the dress out. She just ripped the dress out and I think ripped the dress in the process. So it's that thing when you suddenly sit there as an audience member and you're just not sure if they've just gone somewhere a little beyond the make-believe. And of course, it's when it drops into that that it really gets interesting. And you probably can honestly say, and I can honestly say, I probably only had a handful of those experiences in going to theatre an awful lot. It doesn't happen a lot. It's some very good theatre, but those little moments when it actually transcends and performers and artists will tell you that too. You often find an actor say, it's only happened two or three times in my career when suddenly I felt as though I was actually in another domain. Yeah. yeah. And that's when it gets... And that's what I think we keep struggling towards. I think it's what audiences keep struggling to try and find that. And I think it's what, you know, creative people are constantly struggling to try and find that moment when you... where there's a sort of a... when you, when you sort of like, you know, leave the earthly, earthly constraints and you suddenly go somewhere else. How did you develop the repertoire for Tow Truck? A oh, mixture of doing some things that existed. Nigel Triffitt, do you know? Yeah. Nigel, yeah. Nigel right. came and did a couple of, we commissioned a couple of plays. He did two plays for us. He did one called Duke and one called Punk. 
which gives you an idea, you know, they're about young people. They were two-handers. One was set... One was set in a milk bar, and I think the other one was set in a milk bar. They were both in milk bars. And they were... I remember being run out of Ningen. No, not Ningen. Um, not Ningen. No, that's another story. That's a Nigel story in Ningen. That's when he got, that's when he got busted for something, although I remember that one. That's another story. Won't go there. Uh, uh, no, I, I remember... No, out of... Um, out of uh, Menindi, right. when we did a, we, we had a school show, and, th- and this was a show that was meant for, and we had a big pre-pack, and we did a lot of discussion afterwards. And the local community wanted to um, put this play. I think it was Duke actually, and they wanted us to do it the evening for the community. Could you do an extra performance? And we, you know, we didn't look at our time card. And said no, 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 sorry, that's you know, we get roster time off. We do that. No, we just did these things. So we did it in a community hall that night, and. Um, and, and we'd been, and we were working with a, a lovely man who's still around. I think lives in Menindi, who was a teacher at Wilkenya at the time, and had sort of commissioned us to do a number. A couple, we had another company out doing stuff in Western New South Wales at the time. But Colin McCollar runs the Auckland Theatre Company, was in one of those companies. who has been he's been running the Auckland Theatre Company for thirty or forty years. You know, but he, his, some of his early stuff was with tow truck out in the out around Menindi, Wilkenya, White Cliffs, and those sort of places. Anyway, we get we get up the next day and we go and the and the principal from Wilkenya who'd come down just and said don't don't go don't go and try to go to the garage to get any petrol I've got a few spare tanks because they won't serve you just drive now back to Wilkenya get move now don't talk to people apparently we'd so offended the local community they were practically ready to come and lynch us what was the play about what, what it was, was just two it was two kids two kids in a it was actually Duke. It wasn't... It, it, no, it was actually... What did I say? Part, no, it was Duke. It was Duke. It was a jukebox. The set was a little... looked like a jukebox. And it was sort of like two people engaging about being young. So it was all about sex, drugs and rock and roll. But it was sort of like talking. If you did in a school, then you contextualise it. Out of a school, it just looked like a fairly... And I'm afraid in... This is 1977. Menindia, 1977 was Menindia in 1977 <laughs> and so we had to get out of town pretty quick so we drove straight back to Wilkenya uh, with our couple of tanks of petrol and got back to Wilkenya and got out of there although we did go back to we did go back to Menindia a couple of years later and did some things in there maybe there was a new t- new staff or a new community I don't know yeah so there was some so theatre education you asked me how how did I get involved is that what no, you No, the, the repertoire that you because you were doing things like well, Hating Alice and Ashley and uh, well, Year that, Nine that was after me which... Richard Tully came and did Hating Alice and Ashley so we right. were doing stuff before that and I can't remember what else we Norman did Norman Ahmed we did Norman Ahmed and we yeah. did um, we did a, a Brian Friel play and we did oh we did a very famous Adrian Mitchell play which we which we did for a very long time and I actually directed that with a guy called Gary Fry called um, Man Friday which had John Stone you remember John Stone the actor John's around John mm. was an actor around Griffin and other places and then became a librarian and uh, Laura is Laura is his wife and she's I think mixed up with the MEAA still um, and John was in it as well um, and Man Friday was basically which is an interesting thing because it was about education and I, and I it was a, sort of about fr- Crusoe trying to teach Friday a Western world, but Cruz, but Friday trying to say, you have to change Crusoe because I'm not going to be part of your thing. And a reconciliation between both of them, understand, we sort of are who we are, 
we have to understand we come from different backgrounds and we come from different cultures. And Adrian Mitchell wrote some other lovely plays. He, he did a lovely play about Blake, which I think the National Theatre did. In there. And we toured that around. And then eventually I actually played that character. I actually, I actually played Crusoe for, I don't know, 140 performances or something. And then I directed another production of it for the Melbourne Theatre Company when people like Jonathan Hardy was running their theatre and education company. Yep. Um, which was probably in the late 70s too, somewhere around there. So, so, that, that were, so sometimes it was scripts that we existed which we felt had a, re- a relevance to education or schools or, you know, or, or society generally. Um, and then a couple of things we just commissioned and got people to write new plays for us as well. And then Richard, Richard Tully came in and then he wrote some himself. And I think they probably did a few other, did a similar mix of things. And then Richard was there for a, for a while, and then and then the producers and Lynn Stewart, who used to be, I think Richard's general manager. I, I succeeded her at the State Theatre Company of South Australia because she went down there as their general manager, following tow truck, and then I went after her and took up that position now in South Australia as well for so, five years. So running tow truck stands you in good stead for your next uh, career well, as a, an well, arts Well, tow truck. Manager. I went straight out of tow truck yeah. to running to administering the Seymour Group. Right. which was a contemporary music group, which at the time, Stuart Challender, who'd just come back to Australia and was resident music director with the opera, was looking to do other things, and Stuart became the director. So we became quite good friends with Stuart. Stuart used to spend his Sundays over at our place in a beanbag watching shocking Sunday, after mo- Sunday, Sunday afternoon movies. <laughs> he was so exhausted from his work because he was a workaholic and yep. he was an absolutely brilliant man and a lovely man too. Far too young, ridiculous. Um, so I worked for for um, the Seymour Group for about 12, 14 months, and then got a job in um, James Cook University, teaching theatre in a mixture of sort of sort of a it was a mixture of drama and an English program up there, which I sort of did, but I didn't stay very long. I actually broke contract after 14 months because somewhere in amongst that I was asked to come back and look after the Seymour Centre um, one Christmas holidays when Kevin Hanley was running and went off on a holiday and, and the first of the floods happened there. We used to flood in the foyer a lot and we are constantly pulling up the cover. That's why there's concrete downstairs and they, they fixed the drainage system but it was so badly built that I think in the time I actually ran the Seymour Centre which was from about 1983 to 88 we had about six or seven major floods in the foyer because they just well, couldn't. Because the courtyard sort of yeah, slopes down. Remember they put those plane trees in yeah, there? And yeah. all. And then when they actually went digging and discovered all the plumbing had been done unbelievably cheap, you know, they just shoved pipes, put you know, banged a hole, put them in, put some concrete around it. So it was all the pipe and then all the plane trees went down and split any pipes that were any good. Right. So it was a complete nightmare. And I went down to, to, to uh, with, with, with sort of a, a little bit of a, a, a sort of a heads up, we're looking, Kevin was going in to be a monk. He was going to a monastery. You may not believe this, but it's true. He headed off to become, a, I don't know, a Franciscan something or other. <laughs> and he was going and he sort of said, come down and the vice chancellor will see you eventually and, you, and, and you'd be a great person. Because I'd already been there during tow truck because we were based there. So they knew of me, but I left tow truck Seymour Group was based here, so I'd been running that, and then I'd gone away for this 14 months. So I came down, did my six or seven months, instead of having a holiday, I looked after the Seymour Centre. Then I flew back, 
And I, I'd been back two days and a phone call came from the Vice Chancellor's office. Could you come down and, um, and uh, meet, meet the Vice Chancellor? So I had to get on a plane, having driven all the way back to Townsville and flew all the way back down for one day for an interview and then flew home. And they said, oh, you've got the job and then moved and came back, I think, in about March 1983. And that's how I ran the Seymour Centre then for five years. And that's when the whole Nimrod thing changed too. So that's another whole saga. Because Nimrod had, we're over in the old theatre. Nimrod, this has never been written down. And don't believe, um, see how it runs. That the, the, the book that's, yeah. Yeah, which was by, what's his name? Um, he was associate director of the MTC for a while. He just didn't talk to anybody. He just made it up. Well, he talked to some people. And as you know, history in the arts world is made up whoever, is made up by who you talk to last. I mean, Robert Nevin used to get grumpy about Richard Werrett's biography, then John Bell. She used to say, it didn't happen like that. I used to say, Robin, write your book. Yes, yes. Because you'll have a completely different view. And then when we balance them all up, we realise they're completely at odds. And where is the true story? Very hard to find a true story. So, so the, the, the true story about... Um, the true story about Nimrod was that in fact it had that huge successful period when Paul Isles was there, who I also knew pretty well, another person who died far too young. Um, uh, Paul had um, Paul had um, really developed um, that whole period when they expanded, they were doing international work. Gordon Shader did Elocution of Benjamin Franklin overseas on Broadway in London and they were touring Australia and they built up this infrastructure and staff which built it up and then suddenly all of that disappeared and it changed and then suddenly they still had all this cost but they didn't have the revenue anymore. So that's when they got into some trouble and that's when they decided they'd sell the building. Um, oh, there's another whole story there about you know, some, some interesting stories about, about that. No one, th these are all sort of like background stories which the real story of those has never really been told. Um, I remember having crazy uh, meetings in uh, coffee lounges in summer with Paul, um, Greg Jones. Do you know Greg Jones? Greg Jones, at one, Greg Jones used to be a partner of Geraldine Turner's at one point. All oh, right, yes. Uh, but Greg also had put on a couple of, I think he did Buddy, produced Buddy and a few other shows, but he also worked for the Minister for the Arts at the time, who went on to have a federal portfolio too, who ran Lancom. Oh, this, is, this is coming out of the back of my read. That's right. He says it's here. And, um, and I can remember in those days um, that whole, Nimrod having moved over the new Belvoir Street Theatre, a lot of discussions going on between Evan Williams, who ran the Arts Department, the Ken Tribe, who chaired Nimrod at the time, um, I had actually ran the Seymour Centre, but the Seymour Centre agreed that I could, I would administer Nimrod as well, and they came over to Seymour, if you remember rightly, and ran two seasons there with Richard Cottrell as the artistic director. And I was, I was the general manager of the Seymour Centre, and simultaneously I was administrator of the Nimrod, the new Nimrod. And it had to be the new Nimrod. It had to have Nimrod in it because there were some issues about if it changed its name, the grant would be foregone, and then they wouldn't have any money. And I sort of, I didn't start like that. It actually started with Michael Donovan, who was at the old theatre. He was the one who actually moved them into the, into the, into the Seymour Centre. And then another woman ran it for a while, Penny Ramsey. And 
Oh, sorry, this is the old Nimrod. Sorry, it's coming back to me now. Penny, Ram, Penny Ramsey arrived, and that's when John Bell was still there. Aubrey Mallow was still there, and Aubrey did a fame, uh, 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 that King Lear that had um, um, John yeah. Bell played Lear and Judy Davis, and he also did a Robin Archer show called Il Magnifico, which was a complete disaster because Robin didn't write the script. And there was no, a script was not, and they were going to cancel it, but they, and I remember going to a board meeting, and in those days the board meeting used to have a few bottles of wine, and the first half it was going to be cancelled, the second half they'd had enough wine to decide no, we'd keep going with it, because they were going to cancel the production. So the production went on, but it started rehearsal with not much of a script. So poor old Aubrey really had a second or third nervous breakdown, and that's when Aubrey resigned and left, so John was the only one left. And then he got a new administrator in called Penny Ramsey, and this was all within about a one or two year period. And then they decided to form the new Nimrod. They'd, because they were still, I think, I, don't, I, don't, I can't remember the timing of it all. Um, they, they, um, they sold the building to Belvoir Street, which was that, that was a much more generous sale than people understand, because they actually had a huge offer worth another two or three hundred thousand dollars or something or other. In those days, it was a lot of money, but they decided they wouldn't sell it. You know, all those flats that have been developed around, around there. It, yeah. The same developer wanted that land to do it, and it was really the Nimrod board that sort of decided that they would not sell it for the market price, and they'd sell it to the Belvoir Collective. There was some politics obviously they sort of couldn't really upset everybody but there was a generosity there too and in a strange sort of way set the seeds to make as a competitor so Belvoir Street became the principal competitor for the funding towards to the new Nimrod which Cottrell then took on although Paul Isles was supposed to come in and be his first administrator and I'd gone away for a very rare holiday up into the I don't know Byron Bay or somewhere or other and got a phone call saying Paul's pulled out we'd like you to come back and take over so I flew back and got involved in that and became the administrator of Nimrod and the general manager of the Seymour Centre. So I did both two jobs at the same time with two boards, which was a fascinating period. And we managed to get two seasons out of it and then then it was decided, I think, that it was time to stop. Although, this is another story not really known either. There was a, a, a last minute ditch attempt to try and actually keep it going with Simon Weaving, who was Hugo's brother, Simon first worked with me during that period as the finance manager. Um, his daughter is the, um, the film actress, Samantha Weaving, Sam Weaving, is it? Or? Yep. She's in a lot of TVs and over, she got, she's in, this, in the States doing stuff. And um, so Simon stayed on after, and I made a decision to leave the Seymour Centre and that and to go to the State Theatre Company of South Australia. And Simon stayed on and worked with Jim Sharman to actually revive that company and do a new season at the old Footbridge Theatre. Well, that's not even written down anywhere. But there were a lot of plans, there were some plans and discussions to do it and Jim was very involved in it. I think you need to do the book, a book, your book. Oh, well, it's, you know, you know, so, you know, but I mean, there's a whole lot of stuff around there, which uh, the guy who wrote See How It Runs, I can't remember his name, never really captured what was a very complex story and a constantly evolving and moving story over that period of time. It was pretty tricky. Um, so some time in South Australia. South Australia for five years. At and State then Theatre Sydney Theatre Company? And then I came to the Sydney Theatre Company, yeah, for five years. 
I guess you've got to have a similar vision to the artistic director, don't you? Who were you working with? At, was it Gaydon in South Australia? Yep, John was there for the first two years, and then Simon Phillips. Right. And they were both terrific directors to work with. I've never had a, uh, I've never not worked with a director of a company who hasn't been a fantastic colleague to work with. Right. They're always, you know, they often, you know, those directors are always very responsible. They're, they've got incredible intellects. Not only great creative people, but they're also quite astute about what works, what doesn't work, and the business side of it as well. And Gail Edwards at that time was associate director to John Gayden. And to be fair, she did a lot of the programming. She was very... John was sort of like the... He was the front person, and everyone loved John. When he left, I remember subscribers queued up for... Like there were 50 of them, you know, like queued up, constant stream of people for about a three-hour period. And he sort of sat on a chair and he practically had an audience with each of them, you know. It's like the Pope, Brilliant. Pope John. Brilliant. And then, and then, of course, Simon came. And Simon was... Uh, Simon then, of course, established that ensemble, which Geoffrey Rush was in. Um, for Geoffrey Je- didn't stay that long. He did Marat Saad and he did Comedy of Errors. And you're working with Wayne Harrison at Sydney Theatre Company, is that right? I then came up to, yeah. Well, I, initially when I came, Wayne was there, and I came initially when Michael Lynch was still there. I actually came up as the touring and the special project manager because they were looking to expand. Wayne was very always expansionist and wanted to do. So I sort of got that job. And then Michael went to the Australia Council, and then I applied for that job and got the general manager's job. So I was general manager before, and I was the special project manager for the first year I was there. Um, and so, and Wayne I'd known before because Wayne had sat on the International Festival of Young Playwrights board, which which Errol Bray, another person who wrote a very well-known play that Neil Armfield directed called The Choir, which was about the um, Vienna Boys Choir and the castration of the of the young boys to get their voices up, which was a the play, play, play down at Belvoir Street. Yeah, the Castrati and um, and uh, and. Um, so I met Wayne there, and Wayne at that point I don't think was the director. I think Richard still was, and Wayne was the dramaturg. I think he was the literary advisor initially at the STC. And then I think when when Richard left, then Wayne came in. That's right. Yeah, that's right. So I sort of I knew Wayne before, but I I sort of got to work with him obviously much more closely during those five years at the Sydney Theatre Company, and that's where we did tap dogs and things like that did the Starfish Club downstairs. John Howard, we started the, um, the Loaded Ute. Michael Gow came in and did the, um, did the uh, New Stages program, which was when we actually got a consolidated program of activity happening in, um, in, the, in Wharf 2. That's where the guy who wrote Tony, the Cafe Latte Kid, he did, it was his first play. Um, he's just did that film with Olivia Coleman, which won the Academy Award. Um, um, he, he, anyway, I can't remember that. He, he, that was his first play, and of course Michael programmed it. And of course Mitchell Butel was one of the first performances that Mitchell Butel was in. A, it was a little short one act, one act about an hour long. It was called The Cafe Latte Kid. And now, now he's running Adelaide. Yeah, now he's running Adelaide. <laughs> it goes round, you see, in circles. And Parramatta Riverside Theatres, you've been here 20 years now? Not quite, 19. We must say 20. Okay. Okay. 20. 
Yes, I have. Because when I left the Seymour Centre, uh, sorry, when I left the Sydney Theatre Company, I went out to Fox Studios for just a year in that crazy period when they were, you know, the Titanic ride. And the, I spent a lot of meetings, I spent a lot of time in meetings about queuing and how long you would have to have a queue to get people through this ride. Of course, the ride never worked. It did sort of seem to have a bit of a problem about a, a ship that sank, but anyway. And of course, that was a funny sort of period because it was News Corporation and Len Lease in this sort of joint venture type. So News Corporation had the movie, had the had the um, had the, the um, film rights, the, had the uh, had the movie studio side yeah. of it, and Len Lease were developing the showground, and then Ben Street, and and because of the arrangements at the time with the state government. Playbill, which was Michael Nebensale's lot, actually got the contract to run the Royal Hall of Industries, the Byron Kennedy Hall, and the Horden Pavilion. Um, and I was sort of, in, I managed those and the show ring, but I was actually employed by News Corporation. So my employee was Fox Studios, but I was seconded to run these venues because Fox, the News Corporation and Lend-Lease weren't allowed to do that because it had something to do with how much control they had on the site because there were limitations under the, I think under the, under the Sydney City Council or under something else. There was a whole lot of legal reasons why they had to do it that way. So I did that for a very short period of time. I got sick of going to queuing meetings. And then I, um, then I, then I, then I just did about 12 months of freelancing where I'd, I, I worked down the Opera House on their Millennium things and then I did some work to try and see whether we could tour the English National Ballet and Edgeley Circus to India. So I went off on a trip to India and uh, went and looked at venues in Mumbai and Delhi on a two-week mad trip where I ended up in the back blocks of places with freight forwarding people surrounded by cows. <laughs> it's a very strange trip. Anyway, what we worked out was it wasn't economically viable. So they never took. So you didn't go. To so we year. didn't. We didn't. We didn't go. And in fact, it took me a year to present the report to the Edgley people, because they were never available to do it. So how I ended up there, I don't know why. It was one of those sort of things. They was obviously something they wanted to have a look at, but they did decided eventually. But it took a year to deliver. I, I was back, but I could never get a meeting with them to deliver the report. I eventually did, which was a good thing. And then after that year, I think this job just came up somehow, and someone and I and because I'd had that association in Western Sydney, I thought. I already then knew this is going to be, this is going to be the future. The growth centre is going to be, and I probably came a little too early because I think it's now coming into its own. But it's taken a long time. Well, Paramount is the geographical centre of Sydney, isn't not it? Not really anymore. It not was. Right, no, right. It's actually now really. It's not. I think the geographic centre slightly moved further west than it was 20 years ago. It was, but it's moved. So people often see Parramatta now as the gateway to Western Sydney, not sort of like almost in the centre of it. We still are the centre of... People still refer to it because that whole Greater Sydney Commission refers to it as the uh, uh, Sydney central city. And it sort of is central. And then there's the Western City, central city, and then Sydney itself, uh, which is the eastern city. So... So yes, I came. I came here believing that we could, we, we could change the paradigm, and, and we sort of have to some degree, but we're still changing it, and it will still take a little bit of time. And because it's such a culturally, it's so diverse, you know, that 
Western um, art form are not necessarily the only thing that can that needs to happen. There's a lot of other like we do. We have a lot of stuff here. You know, Sri Lankan and Indian groups do things here, and there's a lot that's very much based around dance and music. It's not. There are narrative stories in some of those dance and, and music sort of um, presentations, um, but but that's another whole area which which I think is probably the next ten to fifteen years we'll explore. And I think because a lot of those things, like we, those events, seldom happen without a big f- f- um, um, feasting food event happening in the courtyard. So these things are more like big community celebrations and have a, a, another dimension. I guess we do champagne at the bar, the West, the Western Anglo-Celt champagne. In fact, it, it fuses and crosses over a lot, but it is a, it, it's not quite like going to what might be seen to be more Western European art form expressions happening in the centre of Sydney. There's a lot of that in the major institutions, I think. Western Sydney has a different sort of different sort of audience base and and, and, and constituency, and, and we'll have to uh, respond to that. It can't ignore it. Of course, there are people from all sorts of cultures, including Western cultures, but I, I think that's the challenge of the future. And I think spaces need to be built to accommodate all of that, you know, and make sure you can actually prepare food because you're going to need food in amongst it all. Uh, excitingly, you've got a resident theatre company. Yeah, that was a big... Well, we, we always had a production um, capacity because we used to have a thing called Riverside Productions and we did that for years. And because we had a comedy festival here for seven years too. You know, we, t- we brought the goodies out, we two of the goodies, then we revived Arnie Jack and we brought um, um, Nancy Cartwright out from the... From the Simpsons? Uh, yeah, that was going back a while and I, and I must say we just... When the Sydney Comedy Festival started, that was a very intense battle to who was going to win the day and we sort of withdrew from it and said we just can't keep up with that um, and we've gone on to other things um, but the National Theatre of Parramatta was significant Riverside production was significant and we did a lot of production and we toured quite a lot of them around Australia as well we did a lot of touring um, in that period of time but we could never get much recognition of that we could never seem to develop the profile for it so we changed tack and we started to develop National Theatre of Parramatta with a de- definite clear mandate of putting the nation on stage and trying to reflect that cultural diversity as much as we could so why Pearl we've just done you know everybody in that is you know comes from have, has a different cultural heritage than a Western European one you know and a female as well one male in it who was the Western cultural heritage you know the French um, so it's, so that shift has actually I think helped and when we first decided to do that which is now going back five or six years ago in, in a strange sort of way the majors were just beginning to start to cope with that Belvoir really hadn't addressed it um, Sydney Theatre Company hadn't addressed it and of course they've taken major strides in the last short period really it's a very short period of actually now really trying to represent some of that diversity on their stage they still interpret a lot through western art form styles which is fine um uh but i think i think there's going to be even more shift which will come and so national theater of paramount started with that um we sometimes people try to sort of put a push us into you're the multicultural company get into that box and I said well we're not we're, we're what any good company should be trying to respond to its community well you've done stolen as well oh, we've done stolen we've done that we've did that um, transgender 
um, swallow right at the beginning, you know, like, so it's trying to look at the demographic, it's trying to look at sexuality issues, gender issues, um, um, cultural issues, ethnicity issues, or a good theatre company will be exploring all of that. And a good theatre company will be looking at different sorts of traditions through that, that can be expressed through. I mean, I, and I think we'll, we'll need to adapt to those sort of things into the future. Uh, I mean, nurturing new work like Barry Dickens, Juanita Nielsen. Well, Barry's a bit, it's a bit like me. I, I'm sort of like, I go, well, we can't, well, the elephants can't go to the elephant's graveyard. They need to keep stomping around a bit longer. So we, I, I do have a thing where there are some things I think we need to reflect past glories and keep that on the agenda. National, that, that, those projects don't really sit within National Theatre of Parramatta. We do those. We have a big presentations program. And within presentations, you know, we can we, we sometimes get involved in small commissions and supporting things out. National Theatre of Parramatta has its own mandate. It's a sort of a... It's a, a function, functional activity, a Riverside, it's part of Riverside. It's supported by Riverside. It couldn't really exist as a standalone theatre company, or if it did, it would be a very more independent. I mean, we give it a bit more grunt than it probably would have if it on its own. But we do other things as well. And that comes from that sort of strong belief that we should be trying to do... Uh, I, th I think the phrase I try to do, we should be trying to find opportunities for as many people as possible. You know, that, that's really my... That's been my mandate, really. And I've had the great fortune to think, I can tell you now, without having resources to deploy, uh, I, I would have done nothing. Because I, I, I wouldn't have had the... If you have the resources at your hand and you've got a venue and you've got some money, you can do something with that. Now, you can be selfish about it and do it all for you, but I try to make sure that we do it for, you know, for our audiences and for our artists. And I try to balance that all the time you know, that sounds a little bit grandiose, really, a bit too much. It's not really in my my my, my sort of thing, really. But uh, but but it's providing opportunities. I mean, uh, Riverside should be a place where no door is closed. We open we open a door, you know, and we let you in, and we let you have a go. So we're always trying to do, you know, trying to provide people a chance to do something. You know, be it a small independent group who comes and approaches us, we'll pay for it, we'll bring it here. If we have to help it, we've got a couple of projects next year which are outside National Theatre of Parramatta where we're significantly involved in trying to assist those to get them onto a stage. And they'll, they'll happen here. Sometimes things happen here first and then they never happen here again. I always like to say sometimes we're often here for people on the way up and for the people on the way down. The bit in the middle... I'd like to be able to get a, a little bit of that chunk because that, I think, would help us provide more opportunities for people on the way up and to look after the people on the way down. If we don't get a, the chunk in the middle, then we're always... We don't have that bit that helps support that. So, so, so... And the new theatre would allow us maybe to have a bit more of that... that part of that pie because I think that's really quite important and our venues at the moment are limited to... In a, in a way to what we can actually do so with a, with a broader base of venues so, you know up to about a 1200 seat larger proceeding that's about 500 more seats than we've got now and then an adaptable space for around 600 six to 700 which is a really adaptable it may be a fixed upper level looking around but downstairs seating can be completely removed there's a lot of flexibility on how you can stage and audiences don't have to be sitting in seats, they can do other things. And then a black box theatre where you have nothing in it and you can do anything and you might end up with some of those performance installations in there. Um, 
and then obviously a cinema I'd like to make sure we've got you know good cinema and also that we can respond to digital projects as well where we can well I suspect with your passion energy and enthusiasm you're going to be around for a, a little bit longer probably not no no I, I, I winding down now or? I'm not I'm not my I'm winding down but I sort of I can sort of see uh, I can sort of see the horizon I know where it is yeah. and I've even actually probably um, a, few, a year or two ago I probably wouldn't have put a, a, a I wouldn't have been able to sort of absolutely define it, but I can define it now. So I'm going to be around for a little bit longer, but not much longer. Because, look, you know, you, you need new... You need a... I mean, my, my important thing is making sure succession here is done as well as possible. I don't want to really overly influence it, though, either. It's not sort of my role that I'm now going to say, that's, the, that's going to happen. You know, I almost like to think that that succession will create the environment where that succession will be smooth, easily appropriate, wise, and will get the right person, or people, might not even be one person, to actually do the next stage. I mean, I used to I used to have a bit of a vision that I might get to the point where I would be here to see the new building open. I would never work in the new building. That vision went away. I'm not going to do that. Then I had a vision that said, I might be here when we actually knock the building, the the brick, the brick, the first brick gets knocked over, and I thought, and now that vision's gone. So I think I'll still be here when I leave. I think this building will still be here, um, and then hopefully it will actually. There's an article of the City Morning Hill. You can read that. That's a, another little, another delay. There's a lot of delays going on, and it hasn't been helped by. Well, it has been helped by an ambitious... Government's always ambitious about what they want to do, but then they have to actually convince everybody within that government to do it. And there's been a lot of delays. I mean, the story I love to... I'm, I'm pretty patient, too. Like, I'm nine years in to our redevelopment. I first started this thing back in 2010, and we did our first tranche of master planning in 2012. Second, in 2015, we signed an agreement... The council signed an agreement with the state government in July 2017. Two and a half years later we're perhaps starting again. But then I tell the story of having been called from the Premier's office to whip onto Piers 2 and 3 in 1998 to join Bob Carr when he was going to make an announcement. And John Bell was there, and I was there, and Wayne Harrison was there, and the cameras were there. And the Premier Carr actually announced that 2 and 3 were going to be converted and that Bell Shakespeare would be a resident company on 2 and 3. I think... I don't know whether they said the ACR. I'm not sure whether that was contemplated at that point. That was 20 one years ago and they still haven't done it successive governments have re-announced it and re-announced it that's a new theory now of course is the idea is you delay everything because you get the benefit of re-announcing it every three or four years and you get the political kudos of starting again which is another whole theory of politics i guess but you can sort of see these projects are very slow you know they are generational they take a long time someone's got to start like i never really saw the um uh, the Rosalind Packer or the Sydney Theatre. I mean, but we started that probably almost when I first arrived in 93 at the STC. And it was built in, what, um, two... must have been built about 2000, because I think it was the first year I was here. Mm. So that only took seven years. But, of course, in those days, quite often, some of those projects were done slightly differently. Uh, uh, like the wharf, when that was built, that would have been Neville Rand saying, I want to do that. And he'd have gone to Jerry Gleeson, head of premier's department, said, Jerry, do it. Jerry would do it. They didn't, they didn't spend a huge amount of time and money on consultancies and business plans. We've become much more accountable. Um, 
it takes a lot longer to deliver these projects. There's a lot of pre-planning um, that goes in it. Whereas once upon a time, we sometimes we just did them. So there's some ups and downs of that. Sometimes you can do them quickly and get them wrong. On the other hand, sometimes you can spend a lifetime trying to do things and still get them wrong. So it really comes down to who's driving these things. So I'm, I'm not, I'm, I, I always like to say I'm sanguinely skeptical. You know, I, I, I remain optimistic, but I always remain optimistic with a few caveats around that optimism. Because it's a hard, it, you, and, and it really, interesting enough, I, I, I used to be a long distance runner. And I think you have to be a long distance runner. I mean, I'm not a sprinter. Some, some people are sprinters and they, they, they burst and flame and fantastic things happen. I just, I'm a long distance runner. So I'm still running. I haven't come to the end of the race yet, but I can definitely see the marathon coming to an end. Well, we applaud you as you uh, approach the finishing line. You're a, uh, a sig right. significant... Just make sure I'm backed it beautifully. And I want, and, and I want the, the right music playing as I press the tape. Char Chariots of Robert. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Thanks for talking today. It's a pleasure. Robert Love is a treasure trove of knowledge and possesses a contagious enthusiasm in his celebration of the arts and the power of theatre. He's one of the industry's great champions and it was enlightening and entertaining capturing this conversation. Join me next time on Stages when my guest is Helpman Award-winning musical theatre nice guy, Alex Rathgaber. He provides great insight into navigating a career on the stage and the process that supports him with solid technique and an essential approach for what he does. That's Alex Rathgaber next time on Stages. I'm Peter Ayers. Thanks for listening. <laughs>